Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Here we are. Welcome, everyone, to Undersampled Radio episode 28, which is a live, open video call. Anyone who wants to join can join, although... Anyone? <laughs> anyone. Although, somehow I've messed up, and uh, not anyone can join. So if you'd like to join, please send me a message on Software Underground, or uh, go to the show notes, which... The link is on the YouTube description. And uh, post your email address in there, and I will invite you, just like I'm about to invite Tannis right now. Matt, you're here with Evan. Evan made it. What's going on? Hello. Hi. <laughs> yep, certainly am here. I, today's all gone a bit horribly wrong, because um, for complicated reasons, schools. So I'm at home with the kids, in fact. Um, <laughs> they're. Uh, sent them off to watch their favorite TV show. Um, so I'm a great parent and everything. And uh, and Evan is actually down at the hub. Where are you, Evan? Are you in one of the uh, phone booths where I normally am? Yeah, I'm in the in the big red comfy chair using your headphones and your microphone. <laughs> Wait, the, the real question, Evan, is, is the microphone balanced on a set of cacti? Yes. <laughs> that system, I've sure. moved away from that system. It, uh, it's a prickly subject, but <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't working out for me. So it's now on a succulent tripod. <laughs> Actually, not succulent related at all, but a, a legit tripod. Um, how's the hub today, Evan? Are there other people there? Um, yeah, no, it's good. Lonely without, lonely without you, I guess. Yeah, it's nice to be missed, you know. Sometimes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so it's one of those gray, gray, dreary days in Nova Scotia. So I'm hoping, um, hoping it brightens up. I was thinking about going for a run later. Now I'll be taking the kids with me. Actually, they do enjoy. They do enjoy. I don't drag them out at all. <laughs> There's no coercion involved. <laughs> That sounds like a bold-faced lie. <laughs> Sometimes there's a little bit of persuading needs to happen. That's that's normal. It's normal for kids to cry while they're being persuaded. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. So, um, read any good papers lately? Did we, is, did we lose Evan? Don't tell me I'm no. No, it's I'm here. Okay, you just he's sorry. Evan, he's, he's talking to you. Because no, I'm, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make conversation. I'm <laughs> I'm listening. I'm not I'm not used to like oh. You can you can interact. <laughs> we can speak when spoken to, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Still nothing. So Still read nothing. any good papers lately? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not letting that question go. I I, I get I got this. Uh, I get my November issue of the Leading Edge. Well, it came in the mail yesterday, so right. for whatever reason, it takes twenty-seven days to for it to make it to, to Canada. Um, and this month is featuring some near-surface um, imaging, so refractions and tomography stuff. So I feel like the I don't know. It's it's something we see in some of the odd processing jobs um, we. We oversee, I guess, is is confusion around you know the very shallowest of the shallow parts of the near surface, and uh, yeah, yeah. I must say, I I tend not I don't you normally pay a lot of attention to near surface stuff. I know SEG sort of flirted with um, merging, I suppose, with some kind of near surface geophysics group. But then they kind of backed away from it. I think when the downturn hit, maybe they both decided, like, I don't know, that they couldn't afford it or it wasn't going to be advantageous or, or whatever. So it didn't happen. 
but yeah, they still, and First Break does as well, they still carry lots of near-surface content. Like, what are the, is it is it mostly seismic processing that that stuff's sort of going into, or is are there archaeologists and stuff who actually do near-surface interpretation reading it, or where, where's it going? I think, I think it's a little bit more of, uh, yeah, using seismic reflection data sets and, like, doing First Break and refra Refraction analysis for, you know, shallow uh, velocity models, I guess, using tomography. So so not small scale for like archaeology and stuff that, that I was looking at. Right. But it, to, it really, to make, to do, do, to do imaging better? I think so. And, you know, if there's, there's shallow channels and stuff like, you know, quat quaternary channels and things like that. It, it did, it, I've had a question and I'll, maybe I'll throw this out there is like, um, for land-based seismic data, why isn't there always a, a ground-level pick, if you like, or a ground-level, uh, I don't know, spike? Or can we kind of bake that into um, all land-based seismic sections? The idea being that time zero is floating at some seismic reference data above ground level. And like, why isn't that done? Um, and, you know, and ultimately you need a replacement velocity, right? And I always, always feel like, especially when you have geology outcropping at the surface, <laughs> the question is where's ground level on this section kind of thing, you know? Yeah, well, so I could just add, that, add, add it in processing essentially as yeah. a convenience. Yeah, you tell me what the replacement velocity is actually just like give me a spike so I can, you know, yeah. make my surface maps tie with it kind of thing. Yeah, it's a really good idea. Like, why don't we do that? It wouldn't be, in fact, it would be easy to do even in post-processing, right? Yeah. Like, but well, uh, if if you followed our advice about, you know, asking for elevations and all that kind of thing, replacement right. velocity. Right. Um, and replacement velocity is definitely like one of those things that isn't always carried in the header from volume to volume, like we've ended up in situations where uh, I've been on projects where, you know, everybody knows that the replacement velocity is 2000 meters per second or 1800 or whatever. Yeah. And then you're going to actually read the processing report and it, and it isn't, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was different yeah. on like one of the surveys or whatever. And, and this is, you know, <laughs> the very, you know, pun intended, but this is literally scratching the surface of, why velocity model building for depth conversion and mm. other other uses is such a uh, rat's nest of a subject is like we can't even really figure out what ground level is like so how are you gonna you know to me that's the number one thing for building a velocity model it's on land i guess is like start with where the ground level is and, and then go down from there so this yeah, this cool. idea is you know, for the people who aren't following uh the conversation uh on swung on slack um, yeah, I think Alessandro, um, you know, chimed in on this idea of, you know, collaborating some kind of velocity model building worksheet or, or roadmap, I guess, right? Because, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and I feel like this is aligned with that. Yeah. I, so, like, a, um, do you think he's thinking about a kind of decision tree type of a, fl a flow chart? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Like, uh, yeah. Here are my ingredients. What What's the recipe? Recipes that are available to me, basically, is how I would think about it. Yeah. Right. I I always really liked um, like Depth Theme Express was one of Landmark's products that I I actually really liked, and it sort of people would give it a hard time or it didn't get a lot of um, sort of marketing attention, but it's actually a really really nice piece of software and if you read the manual it was the software was actually sort of a little bit opinionated about the workflow you know it, it's definitely possible to do silly things in there um but you know the the workflow i think was actually really sensible with the idea that you start with um, oh hey tennis hey hey congratulations oh thanks <laughs> where where um We'll go back to depth conversion in a minute. <laughs> where where are you? 
Um, I'm at home in Syracuse right now, or my temporary home for a couple more weeks. <laughs> okay, awesome. Yeah. And when was your um, defense, your Viva? Um, Monday afternoon. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, yeah. Just, just the other day. Oh, congratulations. Amazing. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and they're yeah, going to let so you out on good um, behavior. Hopefully. <laughs> Passive defense, still need to get some papers published or submitted before I can actually get the, get the degree, but. I see. That's a that's a major component, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Tell tell us what your uh, dissertation was about. Uh, studying the uh, sediment uh, the sedimentary record or straddle record through seismic of the structural evolution of a rift basin in the East African Rift System. So doing work in Lake Malawi. How much seismic data is there out there? Um, there's a few. So uh, probably there's we have about four or five vintages of 2D seismic there, all of which has been collected for research purposes, including some that we actually went uh, last year and collected. Um, nice. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So you went and placed dynamite out in, out there? Or what? <laughs> we had some air guns. Ah. Air guns on the lake. Yeah. It's and marine lacustrine seismic. Lacustrine seismic. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, we tend to talk about onshore versus offshore instead of marine versus land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And is there any transition zone mess? No. No, and uh, new parts of the lake. Yeah, parts of the lake you can't. Partly um, because of local fishing, we couldn't get within three kilometers of the shoreline anyway. And ah. then you know half of the half of the lake are these steep border faults because it's a rift basin where you have like mountains that are a kilometer above the lake and so I don't know wow. um, the water depth changes pretty quickly around there and so I don't know how much transition zone stuff you can do and there's not a lot of onshore work there um, even just geology work because the terrain's not really that friendly <laughs> <laughs> right ah, sounds awesome yeah. um, was, and that was a, an entirely kind of an academic crew or do you guys hire a a pro crew or what? It was it was an academic crew. Um, we uh, so there was a big NSF project to study extension and magmatism in Malawi and northern Tanzania, and collecting the seismic data was only part of that. Um, but we also they dropped ocean bottom seismometers into the lake, and so we have some refraction data as well. So some of the time we were shooting, we were shooting for reflection data, and sometimes we were shooting um, to target these lake bottom seismometers and a seismograph network onshore too to try and get some deep crustal uh, information. What's wow. the difference in acquisition geometries for reflection seismic data and refraction seismic data? Big source, like <laughs> bigger, much bigger source and longer, longer shooting times mostly because the air guns needed more time with the, the bigger source. Like for the seismometers, we were you know, trying to shoot each shot would be close to 2,000 cubic inches, whereas, you know, it'd be half or a quarter of that for the reflection seismic. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. An air cannon. Yeah. <laughs> um, while we have this intro stream going on, and because Matt and Evan know each other so well, and the rest of us don't know Evan because he has not yet been on this show, <laughs> Evan, give us give us a, a your background, what you do, who are you? Sure. <laughs> Who are you? What do you want? Hi, Why are you in this call? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, apologies to all the viewing public. Um, my video doesn't seem to be working. But um, but yeah, I primarily work with Matt. I live in Halifax, so we're about 80 kilometers apart. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sort of one the second part of, of Agile in all of our various pursuits. Um, yeah, I'm a geophysicist. Uh, with coding habits, I guess, uh, similar to Matt, and um, yeah, that's. I guess we've been we've been doing this uh, partner thing at Agile for was it five years now? I guess. Or, yeah, nearly six. Yeah, but you, right, you so I think your background's a bit similar to Graham's in that you started off in physics, right? Right. Yeah, I did a undergrad in physics from Victoria, and I, I did a master's degree in in sort of rock physics. Um, and that so, um, yeah. Uh, we I, I guess so. Yeah. Two, two questions. Uh, number one is how far is eighty kilometers in a real distance? 
Um, I'm trying to think oh of you know. Um, what do you what, what do you need? I, I, I don't know. I don't know any other. I don't know any other measurement systems. No, not a I guess nautical nautical miles. Miles. That are sensible nautical miles. Right. <laughs> Probably 50 nautical miles. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, question two is one that I ask uh, most of our guests oh, when they. Thank you, thank you, man. <laughs> are you going to? That would matter if you were going to race horses to the hub, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so uh, the, it's interesting to know where uh, people's academic interests lie and how they fell into this uh, thing they're doing right now. And I especially enjoy that when the when the educational background is physics, because I'm a physics nerd myself. But more importantly, and I think probably what everybody watching wants to know is what kind of what, what's your most interesting project that you're working on right now? Oh, well, um, most interesting. Matt and I are pretty excited about some of the uh, machine learning stuff we're doing with lithology prediction, and it's we have some large. Uh, Ambitions, you know, it's kind of an open-ended uh, project, so to speak. It's fairly researchy, I guess. Um, I've been I've been spending a fair bit of my time um, doing some contract work at the provincial government, the Nova Scotia Department of Energy, helping them um, doing this very important and actually ungratifying work of trying to bring forty or fifty years of geoscience history you know, from decomposing paper documents into sort of a modern usable format. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, unsatisfying work, but I guess I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it because I sort of feel like I've, I don't know, I'm a bit of a rediscoverer of, uh, you know, 50 years worth of geoscience, you know, some surveys shot by Texaco back in 1968. Like, you know, it's kind of, kind of amazing to kind of play, uh, you know, go back into the history of, of geoscience and stuff. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's like archaeology. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Have Have you had to do any of that as well, Tannis? Like, trying to dig around for the data. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm kind of lucky. My my advisor actually did his PhD in Malawi, and so all the seismic data that we have has all been work that he's actually been involved in the acquisition of all of it, going back. Um, you know, back to some of the stuff that was collected in the 80s. Um, what I have had to do is dig around to try and find onshore geology maps. And um, the basin that I work in has three different countries bordering the shorelines of it. And so I've had to dig around and try and combine these geological maps from different companies or different countries where they don't line things up and then trying to find, yeah, records of work that people have done there. Um, and it's yeah, a lot of the work is is really old, and you have to dig to find some of the the data that you need um, to understand what's been done previously. And yeah, sounds yeah. just like Nova Scotia, <laughs> <laughs> the African Republic of Nova Scotia. Um, <laughs> and what's uh, what is going to be what's going to be next? For you, like, I, you know, Graham's question about, I guess the most exciting project you're working on right now is finishing your PhD. <laughs> yeah. yeah, getting my papers submitted and I'm going to, I'm presenting at AGU um, in oh. San Francisco in two weeks. Um, so I'm moving back to Canada. My passport actually expires on January 5th, so I need to get back oh. to Canada. Wow. And I have a, I have something in the works, a, a lead on an unofficial job offer, but nothing's formalized yet, and I'm a little bit, um, I don't like to say too much until everything's in writing, so. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, very wise. Uh, well, that's that's awesome. That's a, well, assuming that job offer is also in Canada, that would be a win yes, for Canada, is, having you yeah. back in the country. It seems really important to get back to Canada before, I don't know, January 20th. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be cool. Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, I don't know. New York State sounds kind of cool place to hang out too. I'm sure you've had fun there. It's been interesting, yeah. Um, very interesting to be in a part of New York State that is very different from New York City. Yeah, right. Um, very. Um, it's actually, I mean, Syracuse itself is a is a fairly liberal city because there's the university here and there's teaching hospitals, um, but the surrounding counties are very, very conservative. 
we got um, we were on a field trip once just outside of the city and someone was a little bit worried we were getting too close to their land and so they started firing warning shots to, to <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's exciting how's, so uh how's the uh, rugby team up there at syracuse doing rugby team yeah i used to know some of the rugby players at syracuse oh really yeah. i you know they are pretty low on our on the sports radar here, so I'm not. I haven't. I'm not following them um, too much, so I don't know. I know. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I, I'll I'll look into it. I'll let you know. Don't worry. I'll yeah. keep you updated. Yeah, uh, I should look that up, but it's something I've never encountered. Huh? Or or you so, can completely ignore it because you're about to be out of there. <laughs> well, it's funny because. When I TA'd in the Earth Sciences Department, we have in our intro classes, we end up getting a lot of athletic students. And so I've taught students from quite a few of the different sports, but I don't remember having any rugby players. How do you like teaching? Some days I like it and some days I don't. Uh, the I mean, actual, actual teaching I love, grading I hate. Hmm. And, and dealing with the uh, all the whining and excuses and requests for special treatment I'm not so fond of either. Which which subjects have you taught in the past? Um, so introductory geology and slash geophysics, uh, basin analysis, tectonics, oceanography, and SEDSTRAT. Hmm. Nice. It seems like some of those subjects would be more advanced levels of coursework than others. Yes that you like teaching the higher levels more than the intro levels? Um, they're very, very different. The intro level, you're trying to get people excited enough about something, you know, and trying to get them to actually care about what they're learning about. The upper level stuff, you're, you know, teaching either grad students or students who are majoring in geosciences. And so um, that's a lot more challenging um, because they ask harder questions um, and all like that. But so I think there's, the interaction with the students um, at the upper level ones, I like the scientific and kind of technical component of it better because we get further into depth. But with intro students, I love it when they you actually see them start getting excited about it and see them starting to grasp these new concepts for the first time. And that part is really rewarding. Cool. Yeah, I think that I, I could see both sides of that issue. I mean, it's got to be fascinating to work with upper level students and really encouraging to work with uh, entry level undergraduates. It's cool. Yeah. So I see you've you've put a question here in the show notes. And I think that this is a really interesting one that both Matt and Evan have thought a lot about. So let it rip. Well, it's, it's something that's come up a lot in my research as I'm trying to quantify things in seismic data is how do we deal with the uncertainty that we have? You know, I'm working in a basin where we have a drill site that penetrates about 15% of the depth of the basin. And that's, that's it. Everything else is, you know, seismic. We have a core there and we have an H model there, but everything deeper than that is an extrapolation. And so we're really wrestling with dealing with the uncertainty and, you know, are we doing enough? Um, and how does academia do it different from how industry does it? And I mean, I think the stakes are a lot higher in industry when you have uncertainty in your data um, because we're not trying to pick a drilling location. We're just trying to understand the geological history of the area. Mm, right. Yeah, man. I mean, it's a big subject. I, I, I mean, my two cents is that, um, yeah, I agree that yeah, I mean, I haven't thought a lot about that difference in objectives. I mean, in some way, I feel like, well, it's still kind of the same objective, but you're right. You obviously, when you're drilling a well, the other plus is that you also get to find out. Yeah, that's incrementally, true. Incrementally, yeah. you know, you, you, yeah. I think we often don't look at those as experiments, but they are, you know, yeah. they're, they're experiments. The, I guess the thing that gets me is that there tends to be not a lot of looking back once we've done those experiments. And I think I think there could be more of that. And the other thing I've always been kind of curious about is that I think we may we may never find this out until we have like laser drilling or something. Um, which is what happens? How much more quickly can you learn your models if you drill contraindicated wells? Mm. Right? And I feel like there's probably places where there's enough 
essentially where wells end up being contraindicated in hindsight <laughs> right <laughs> if you've sort of forgotten the model that you drilled on and it turns out oh no we would never have drilled there in fact that is a place where we would drill if we wanted to yeah. disprove our hypothesis but i'm not sure that that's rigorously that's not feels like there's something wrong with that it feels a bit tautological or something um but I, I, maybe those are things you could simulate, you know, in a in a decent data set. And, and I don't see many people working that up. Um, and I'll just finish by saying the stuff that I'm most, I'm really glad to see researchers like Claire Bond at Aberdeen. Um, and I think he's called Andrew Curtis at Edinburgh, who are actually going out and doing experiments with interpreters yeah. and with geological model conceptual model building yeah. um like that i think that's really important work and we should do more of that but i'll let yeah. evan say something because i know he's thought a lot about this too yeah matt and i um this is kind of a favorite subject between us and one one of the things that i think we're not very good at is is sort of all the vocabulary around the types of uncertainty you know claire, <laughs> claire bond's work is He's described it as, you know, conceptual, you know, or like geological conceptual uncertainty. But there's the kind, then there's like measurement precision, you know, like if you're a cabinet maker, you, you want to, things to be accurate on your, your ruler. And when, and so there's, there's different types of ways of, of things having uncertainty, right? Or, um, and, you know, like, it's a different kind of uncertainty than, say, you would do in undergraduate physics labs, right? Where, like, plus or minus your measurement error and propagating yeah. those things. But I do feel like um, I like the idea of having um, maybe we need more tools or toys or games to kind of go through. Um, you know, I have these five ways of changing my map. What are the what's going to make my map change the most or make my interpretation change the most and you talk to people about like you know should i change move this position of this fault interpretation you know 50 feet in that direction you know claire bonds work like well maybe it's the throw on that fault which you can't see on the seismic data that's a much larger uncertainty anyways right so i feel like we're not very good at like prioritizing the, the impact of the different uncertainties um and yeah right there's some kind of sensitivity analysis what what sort yeah. of stuff because I, I know you i remember um sort of tweeting with you uh probably a couple of years ago now about some uncertainty around like finding things on 2d lines and that kind of stuff um how has how has the uncertainty crept into your thesis work well i mean i i have the advantage of a bunch of different data sets so i do a lot of mapping and i'm really thinking about you know regionally what i see when i look at 2d lines um, but other people have interpreted the same 2D data and interpreted completely different things that I just really don't think make sense in a three-dimensional basin. Um, and so I'm really careful about trying to quantify as much as I can and integrate as many different, you know, look at things from as many different intersecting 2D lines and make as many maps as I can to do that. But um, and, and thinking about the processing, and I have a unique background because I did my undergrad in geophysics and now I'm doing, you know, the, the, the geological side of working with seismic data. So but I definitely think a lot more about what artifacts are versus what's actually real. And that's actually one big point we had a big discussion about during my defense on Monday was stuff that I don't think is real um, and that other people do think is real. And so that changes how we interpret it. <laughs> oh, right. So yeah. we run into that. But I mean, you know, we're trying to extrapolate information, particularly from this one core that we have in this one age model. And we're trying to make estimates about the age of the basin because, mm. you know, there's and yeah, extrapolating an age model is a terrible idea. Um, and especially when you don't have any constraints on the lithologies or the porosities or anything below that. But it's still the best data that we have right now. Mm. And so we're you know, trying to figure out the best way to approach that. And I think we are going to go into sensitivity testing. But a lot of um, the I have one paper that's going to be submitted where a lot of that is it's 
full of just like detailed information saying, you know, these previous interpretations aren't really valid and they're based on, you know, one particular 2D line. Well, here's another 2D line that shows that they're wrong. They're kind of not explicitly yeah. like that, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it's fairly kind of um, what's the word methodical um, analysis of yeah. idea after idea. Yeah, right. I mean, like with with all the data that we have, here's the framework for this basin. That, right, like, right. Yeah, like so, looking at the implications of a of an interpretation and then testing those implications. Yeah. Um, the the real versus not real thing is kind of interesting. Is that um. You, you were sort of, your position was that they were like processing artifacts or something like that. Have you been processing these data or? I, actually, the new data, the new data we collected, I processed. So that's the okay. really cool thing about this, this part of my work and kind of two chapters of my dissertation is I was involved in planning some lines, targeting some structures that I wanted to look at in more detail, did the acquisition of them, did the processing of them, and now I'm doing the interpretation of them. So yeah. that's, uh, I mean, how many people get the chance to do that as part of their PhD? Yeah, um, awesome. So yeah, so I've done the processing on them and it's, you know, it's a lot of it has to do with, well, there's a bunch of mud diapirs in, but the yeah. problem, because we're looking at them in 2D, there's a lot of out of plane stuff that we're seeing in there. And so trying, you know, that's a place where, you know, if, if you, if you interpret the diffractions as on lap, that completely changes your interpretation of what's going on. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So how do you quant do you quantify? You, you mentioned that you guys were thinking about moving into sensitivity analysis. How do you quantify and how do you keep track of the uncertainty or errors in not only the seismic data, but in the entire experiment? Do you have a collated record? Um, <laughs> sort of. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it is just kind of addressed. We, a lot of the uncertainties addressed qualitatively as part of the, the write-up of the method, saying, you know, they, these are some issues that we can't properly address right now. We acknowledge that they're there, but we can't really, there's not a lot we can do about them. Um, but the one thing I am working on right now is, yeah, this, uh, with this, where I've got this age model that someone else published from the core, and I've created the synthetic to tie that core to the seismic data, um, but then I want to extrapolate um, first of all, the time depth curve below the depth of the core um, using interval velocities. So then those are calculated from stacking velocities. So I need to keep track of those. Then I want to extrapolate the age model. So I need to keep track of the error in there. And the act the absolute error in the short, the actual part of the age model, I can keep track of and kind of apply through. But again, this is somewhere where I don't know if there's really a way to quantify if I'm misinterpreting the seismic facies and the lithology is totally different from what I think it is. I don't think I can quantify that. <laughs> right. um, but then, and then also looking at whether or not we should be, it's a mud basin, so do we need to be decompacting everything when we have no porosity, you know, don't have really good porosity control? And um, so, yeah, that's what the, the, what I need to, the big thing I need to fix this week. Um, it's kind of consolidating all of the different attempts I've made at sensitivity analysis and uncertainty in there and find a way to consolidate that in a way that's actually presentable. Yeah, right. So this is related to a question that Martin uh, posted in the show notes. And this is geared towards industry professionals, though. I'm sure, thank you, Evan. I'm sure that uh, uh, you encounter this in academia, too. And that is, how do you... And, and I guess this question I'm, I'm aiming at, Matt, uh, how do you explain things like uncertainty, error, uh, quantitative analysis, maybe is a stretch, uh, to uh, someone that is non, not a specialist in a field, is, is not, uh, does not have an academic background, doesn't understand what you mean when you say, uh, this is my interpretation with a 25% error. Hmm. Interpret yeah. interpretive leisure. I mean, um, okay. I have a tough personally. I have a tough time getting the uh, data constraints across to uh, business managers, mm -hmm. etc. How do you yeah, deal with that type of thing? The, well, yeah, there is a real um, well from a couple of angles. There's a desire among 
you know, usually you've got some kind of uh, client, right, for an idea, like someone that needs to know um, your output so that they can make a decision and, and so on. And um, often the system that they're propagating your information into has no way of recognizing these uncertain parameters, right? They need an answer, like a volume or a, a depth for a well prognosis or whatever. And their spreadsheet or their model just, just can't accommodate. So there's a, there's that there's so that's one place where there's sort of cultural it's a kind of cultural pressure I guess to um, collapse the uncertainty. Um, but there's I think there's also a bit of a especially in expiration there's a bravado of the expirationist kind of cultural pressure to spin the story and you know. Um, have this kind of tight, self-consistent play or prospect description that um, people can get comfortable with. You know, I think that they can feel like, yeah, all the evidence does line up. You're right. That you know, that's why there's porosity preserved there, and that's why there's migration into that trap or whatever. Um, and and then and I think that actually comes from. A general geological culture of of storytelling. <laughs> so this is kind of a strong word for it, but I mean that's kind of what basin analysis. And I mean, because the fact is, we'll never know the answers to a lot of these questions. Like they just they are um, they'll remain in the geological past forever. Um, and and so you sort of feel like an explanation with error bars on everything isn't really an explanation somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so there's so much pressure basically in the end to, to gloss over or to sort of say, to basically answer the question, yeah, yeah, we get all that, but what do you really think it is kind of thing. Um, and, and like I say, I, I don't think we're even close to coping with that, but I feel like just trying not to fall into the trap of um, of of storytelling, essentially, because just like Tanis says, like the people who preceded her in, in these interpretations, perhaps with a little bit less data, essentially made their interpretations as if they were that was the story they were going with, kind of thing the sequence of events and the tectonic history and the sedimentologic response and so on. And like she says, either they missed something, they didn't have enough data to make that call, but later it's like, well, that's not, that's not possible. And so they kind of blew it in a way. And I guess the scary, right? I mean, kind of, like you didn't, if you didn't include that, so that's not to say that you won't turn out to be wrong later. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you can get cited more if you're wrong, though. So, <laughs> yeah, the extent to which you can kind of accommodate the bits that that aren't knowable yet, or whatever. Let me ask a related question in a similar way. Uh, Evan, how do you sell to a client a pre uh, a machine learning solution? And uh, do, do you, for example, do you do you try to quantify errors? Uh, do you try to pitch the minimization of error in the interpretive solution? I, I mean, I have no idea what the machine learning thing you guys are working on does. Right. But I mean, is is error one of these things which you try to incorporate in the sales pitch? Yeah, I mean, we're we're asking similar questions of what do people want or care about, um, you know, and. What what's important to me or what I feel passionate about may not be, you know, people may not care. Like people just might want to know where is the reservoir. Give me your best prediction of reservoir, as opposed to show me, uh, you know, the the probability of that point in space being being reservoir or whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you would th like say. Your prediction if you show the reliability of the prediction to people it you know the, you can't really hide behind anything anymore right like it's as good as it is like you can't you you, you know to me there's a uh, 
you're making the data vulnerable, I guess. And to me, there's that, it aligns with this notion of, you know, it being, you know, that's, that's what good science is, right? It should be like everything exposed. Um, so to me, that, that it's part of the prediction, right? Is, is the uncertainty, like, uh, like going back to this idea of like how silly numbers are, right? Like if I said like, what's, <laughs> What's the average intelligence of a first year geology class? And you tell me, you know, the average class score was 60% on the test. You know, that it doesn't, you know, what you really care about is the distribution, right? Like, um, especially in natural resources, when we're looking for two, two standard deviations above the mean, usually we're looking for the 99th percentile or the one percentile extremes. And yet we throw averages around all the time, right? Like we're not very good at, you know, averaging. If we're looking for the needle in the haystack, why do we keep averaging stuff? And so I, I feel like, um, yeah, but it's hard, right? People don't want to look at like probabilities. I, I, I think the culture is maybe, maybe a little bit more process driven or engineering driven where like you need an answer, not a uh, not a bunch of ranges of answers, right? So, I, I, I do feel like I, I hope. I mean, I guess we're we're gambling in a way that um, people will appreciate having access to some like along with the prediction curve. Let's say there's a there's an uncertainty curve, but I don't think people know quite what to do with it. You know, because it's not necessarily trivial to use that as a weighting function, say, in the next thing you're going to do, like build a static geo model or whatever it might be. Um, so there's some slight, just like, what do I do with that information? And that's partly an, a training thing, and it's partly a software thing, and it's partly a kind of, um, partly that cultural stuff I was talking about. But there's also, I think, just, you know, it's a bit like with the sort of 20% chance of showers or 40% chance of, of rain tomorrow. It's like, well, what does, it, what does that mean? It means if we have tomorrow 10 times, it'll rain four times. <laughs> but, but we're only going to have tomorrow once. Um, and there was a bit of confusion about that after the, uh, after the election, right? People were like, oh, the chances of Trump winning were only 20% or whatever. So you guys were wrong. And it's like, well, that's, that's not really what a 20% chance of winning a 20% chance of winning doesn't mean that he's not going to win, right? Um, so so it, it, there's, I guess, just intellectual confusion about what these numbers even mean, never mind what to actually do with them if you do understand them. So there's, there's a lot of baggage there. And yeah, it's I, talking about it and giving people uncertainties and things and being, like, sort of delivering it, I think is obviously... It's necessary, but insufficient, let's put it that way. Yeah. Evan, I want to give you a chance. This is a total pivot, but I do I want to give you a chance to ask one of the few questions that you've put in the notes. Mm. Um, it's, <laughs> I have one. One of them is my favorite, but I'm going to let you, you pick your favorite and ask it here. Oh, well, I, I hope I picked the right one. But <laughs> um, well, yeah, I guess. I'll, I'll choose this the second one I put in there, which is yes. um, like, you know, the upstream oil and gas industry or the natural resources industry is, you know, is has a lot of historical stuff like paper seismic data, you know, like, and I, I wonder like what a company like Google or would do if if they decided to get into like you know, subsurface characterization or, you know, like they've basically taken over a lot of, um, a lot of other domains. Like how would they do resource exploration? Um, like versus like how Chevron does it, that, that kind of thing. And, and like, what is, what does that mean? And, um, and why aren't they doing it? Have they just decided that there's too much baggage, uh, of, uh, like, <laughs> things that need to be modernized in order to kind of do it properly. Um, yeah, and other other folks have uh, comments about that? Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like, a, uh, in contrast, the contrast between Google and Chevron is agility, among other things, right? 
Mm. I mean, for a, for a very large company like Google is, um, they seem to remain sort of in a in a state of learning from a, from an outsider's perspective, and I would hope that uh, what would Google do scenario in resource exploration would lead to modernization of technical. I, I would imagine that it would lead to a, a, a modernization of technical practices, and I also think that that's happening already. Um, with the resources, the scope of resources that Chevron has is on par or above what Google has. And so you'd like to see an acceleration of this modernization of technology. Um, but Chevron is a big company and they have a lot of assets to protect, right? So it feels like they need to move slowly uh, and not jump the gun. I don't know. Uh, what would what would a, a budding um, geoscientist going into industry do, Dennis? <laughs> um, I don't know. I um, I mean, I, I actually did spend some time in industry between undergrad and um, grad school, working with uh, private geophysical service companies in Calgary. Um, and I mean, the big thing that we always, the biggest barrier we always came up against was, you know, everyone's just trying to protect their, yeah, protect their data. And so um, that was, I think, I think finding, finding ways to share resources without compromising the assets is, is probably, is a really, really important thing. Um, I remember working as a processor, getting a set of lines in from one client one time that we had just processed for a different client a few weeks before, and we had to start again completely from scratch because we can't, you know, can't share that kind of knowledge in between our stuff. And it just seems like there's got to be less redundant ways to still protect everyone's interests without having to reinvent the wheel every time you're working with someone else's data. One thing I would um, comment on too is it's maybe not just like Google's uh, capacity for building technologies on top of data, but you know, there's there's the, this other idea of like why don't geoscientists or what are the, what's the obstacle between more geoscientists embracing this notion of like version control in their work? Um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of projects, interpretation projects, and geocellular model projects where some of these tools are, are coming into play. But but I feel like culturally or or professionally, like this notion of like you know how GitHub works and how software developers innovate so quickly is because of these types of technologies. And you know, like they are technologies, right? And I, I and I feel like to me, there's there's a, a a human problem as much as there's a technical problem in, in how in how we do our work, right? How we name our files, how we press save. Yeah. You know, I want to play the history button and see how my and replay and see how my map is changing as I collect more data. Like uh, those things, I feel like there's a lot of simpler stuff that we could do, just in, in how we work on these these projects, right? Um, Comments. I agree. I, you know, one of the challenges I see, not even which is not even restricted to industry, is um, convincing more senior people that more expensive isn't always better, and that you know there's a lot to be said for open source work, and you know, and you know things like I all of the a lot of the data that I try and quantify I pull out of our expensive seismic interpretation package and I try and get it into I use R for a lot of things so I try and make a lot you know analyze a lot of my the numbers the numerical stuff I do in R because I have full control over it and it's easy to play around with things and I there's no black boxes involved in that but um, it sometimes has been a hard sell to convince people that that really is the best way to do it Lucas says, uh, how many industry professionals have used version control? Do they know what it is? Do they, without exposure, you can't, you can't change your mind about things? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, I the mean, concept, yeah. 
Yeah, the concept. I mean, it, I would say mm, people are. F it, th there's some kind of version control built into um, SharePoint, which a lot of corporate people mm -hmm. are, unfortunately for them, familiar with. I say unfortunately for them just to be explicit about it because SharePoint is a terrible, terrible piece of software. Um, Here comes another lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Wikipedia has version control and wikis in general. There are corporate wikis. Um, Dropbox has version control. Google Docs has version control. So, I mean, I feel like it, if you haven't, and in fact, if you haven't taken advantage of version control yet, then you know. Or another one is um, really beautifully implemented. Right? Is the Time Machine or whatever it's called on the Apple uh, Mac OS, um, which does that cool kind of animated visualization of previous versions of files. Um, so I feel like if you haven't been in contact with it, then you're sort of not paying attention, probably, or haven't ever had a a hard drive failure or emergency like that. Um, someone did, did did a really nice job of, um, who was it? Do you remember, Evan? I think it was Jacob Fauché um, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. uh, the hackathon in New Orleans, I think, built a kind, essentially coerced a bunch of geophysical data into GitHub, um, which sounds bonkers, but one next feature in GitHub that you, our listeners may be interested to hear about is that GitHub actually will render GeoJSON files as a map. So all you have to do is make a GeoJSON um, file to go with your data and you can render like the path of a seismic line or um, now I bet you could even, maybe he did this, I don't remember, you could probably even get it to display a seismic horizon in some cunning way. Um, certainly the extensive one. So, you know, he he poked around a little bit, like, what does it look like if I kind of layer version control on a seismic project? Um, so, yeah, it's... It, and and I'm, I'd be amazed if Exxon or Shell or Statoil or one of these more kind of technical companies hasn't perhaps not solved that problem, but hasn't had a really good look at it. Um, I, you know... I guess that the shame is that we'll never find out if they, even if they do nail it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do a hackathon on, on kind of, you know, me methods of reproducibility or something like that, um, in in geoscience. This, I know there's this, uh, what's it called, the paper of the future or something like that. Some kind of NSF effort to promote more reproducible actually you know what i think it might be an agu effort to promote more reproducible science in geophysics um like we this need is a, that. that's related to chris jackson's question in the notes about uh, openness in publishing in academic publishing specifically his mm. question which we've addressed several times on the show and have not come up with an answer but his question is uh how do we how do we force that to happen how do we include more people in the open publishing and reviewing process? Uh, and if it's not mainstream enough as is, how, how do we how do we make that the standard? <laughs> we need another episode for this. Yeah. Well, sorry, sorry, Chris. You're out of luck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're great questions. Um, my my sort of default mode, and I feel like. In a way, the internet's kind of default mode is like it relies on it doesn't rely on on a lot of pulling, right? It's sort of like push and make people want to figure it out and just rely on sort of curiosity and people's awesomeness. But, but yeah, I mean. Maybe that maybe that can only ever be a marginal modality. I don't know. Like maybe that never goes mainstream, or it just takes a hundred years. I'm not sure. Like, what do you see, Tanis, in the academic environment? Are people clamoring to be more open and 
collaborative online and stuff? Um, well, when it, people are trying to think of ways to collaborate because that seems to be the best way to get grants these days is if it's okay. a broader, you know, broader impact, more collaborative work. Um, but when it comes to publishing, um, it's still too cost prohibitive for most academics, I think. Um, not some institutions have, um, you know, have funds in place for actually publishing. But if you haven't, you know, if you've got a specific grant, if you haven't made room in your budget in your grant and held on to some of your funds to the end to be able to publish open access, then, you know, you're out of luck because, you know, even some, even some journals that aren't open access are, are, you know, you still have to pay to publish. And so that's, that's a big problem. And I think, you know, I think I would love to see more people in academia thinking about why they publish. Are they publishing just for the sake of publishing to get more publications on their CV, um, you know, which affects, you know, their job prospects or their tenure application, or are they publishing to contribute to, to contribute to the science and to further the work that they're doing and be part of a community of people working on the same problems? Because mm. um, I think your answers to those questions changes where you want to publish. Yeah, right. And and I would say the similar. You, you need to answer similar questions if you're like the AGU or GIF or SEG about your purpose and whether you're serving the science and the community or whether you're serving less charitably, I guess, yourself and your organization yeah. and its yeah. sort of cash situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, you were alluding earlier to like page fees and open access fees, which a lot of people may not realize are like how you know if the, if you see an open access paper in SEG in geophysics, it's because the authors have paid SEG like I think it's three thousand um, dollars to to bring that paper from behind yeah. the paywall. Yeah, like a lot of people don't realize that. Um, so, like Tana says, if you haven't budgeted for it essentially in your grant, then you're just it, it's free to publish a black and white paper. Uh -huh. In, in geophysics uh, yeah. that's behind the paywall. Um, so yeah, that's scary. And I, I, it would be so progressive to see a corporation sort of step up and say, and I don't know that SEG even solicit contributions like this, but to see, you know, a, a, one of the more sort of enlightened companies um, sort of step up and say, we're going to pay for the issues four of geophysics next year to be open access. Um, you know, they contribute at that scale to SEG all the time. It's just that it goes into a big bucket and who knows, maybe gets spent on, on terrible coffee at the next meeting. <laughs> so right? if you need a liaison Some... to the SEG, you can talk to Matt Hall. I can hook you up. <laughs> Two minutes left. I want to ask Tanis, what's the most important unsolved question in geophysics? You know, probably going back to how you deal with uncertainty, I mean, there aren't a lot of frontier areas left, but in terms of what we do in academia, a lot of the data that we work with is similar to working in frontier areas. And so thinking, yeah, how do you, how do you deal with the uncertainty when you don't have the empirical constraints that you really would like? Nice. And that reminds me, actually, I just want to mention that, um, I first met Tanis, uh, well, sort of online on Twitter. Um, <laughs> that sounds really weird. Uh, but um, she was one of the sort of awesome little posse of people who not only came along to the first unsession that we did at this CSPG conference in Calgary three years ago, I think, um, but was like a host and kind of basically helped um, manage some of the conversations at one of the tables that we had kind of running at that event. And um, that was about unsolved problems and uncertainty was one of the top yeah. top things there. So yeah, it just reminded me of that, <laughs> that event. What was that, like 2013, I think? Yes, because it was my first year in Syracuse, so yeah. Okay, right, cool. 
Well, thanks, Evan and Tannis, for joining us today. Um, we had an awesome time chatting with you. Sorry we had a little technical difficulty there at the beginning. But um, we, we'd love to have you guys back on the show and uh, look forward to seeing what both of you are doing in the future. All right. Cool. Definitely. Yeah. Guys, thanks join for... us. Sorry. I was just saying thanks for doing this. Thank yeah, you for coming. Join us next week for a conversation with someone about getting money for R&D projects. <laughs> See you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.